Ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. You're listening to the Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions. Get across trends in the area and hear the industry's best recount their real-life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki. Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and welcome back to the Deal Room Podcast, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Now we have part two of the two-part series about industry-specific issues relating to valuations and business sales and acquisitions in the veterinary industry. If you missed part one, then I highly recommend you go back and listen to that first. So just go back to the podcast that's just sitting above this one in your favorite podcast player. But if you've listened to part one, then lock in for part two. This is a really useful episode to round out this discussion that we're having today. In this part two, we're looking at the types of multiples that veterinary practices can sell for and the difference between getting a low multiple versus a high multiple. We look at selling out to corporates versus selling out perhaps to our staff or other third-party buyers. We also look at the concept of earnouts and we look at a lot of issues relating to the sorts of elements that you need to be thinking about when priming a business for sale to ensure that the value of that business is something that can transfer over to the buyer and to leave you with the maximum amount of cash in your pocket at the end of the day after sale. And we have back on the show Anne and Paul Lencioni from APL Accountants and also from ValueVet, who are in absolute industry veterans and professionals here because they've both worked as veterinary surgeons and then followed on to become accountants and working in their own accounting practice after working in their own veterinary practice. So they really understand the industry in a very deep way and it leads to a really great discussion in this part two of our two-part series. So without further ado, here we go with Anne and Paolo. Well, Anne and Paolo, I just want to say a very big welcome back to part two of this really interesting discussion all about the veterinary industry and uh, valuations and sales and acquisitions within this industry. Um, as I um, said at the beginning of part one, have no fear if you're coming in to listen to this podcast and you're not in the veterinary industry, it's still really relevant um, to hear some of the things that we're talking about because we're really touching on a lot of elements that are uh, really relevant for you to consider in relation to what's specific to your specific industry. So we really what we're talking about from a broad sense is the ability to go deep within your industry and, and the benefits of understanding your industry um, in, in a sale environment or acquisition environment or even just in a, in a business environment itself. So Anna and Paolo, thank you so much for coming back onto the show today. Good to be back. Thanks for having us. Great. Okay, now I have got so many questions for you. Um, But what I'd like to just perhaps start on is um, in part one, we had a little bit of a discussion towards the end about some of the uh, clients that have been referred to you by 
more generalist accountants and some of the reasons behind that. And I, I think it's a really important topic to consider because we have lots of accountants who are listening in. And I, I think maybe it's really useful for them to understand what some of the reasons are and perhaps in the past where you've had accountants who um, who have been generalists, who have um, referred uh, veterinary clients into you for valuations and dealing with the acquisition and sales side. What what are some of the reasons for that? And what are, what are some of the benefits? And and I guess on the flip side, what are some of the risks if they're trying to hold this themselves without knowing the industry? So I think generally accountants that are familiar with um, valuations would most likely understand that it's very different depending on the industry type. So unless you are experienced in an industry type, I think you are likely to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, it's not just about knowing the multiplier, but as we discussed in part one, it's also knowing the things to look at in the financials, the things that you may need to adjust for. So the adjustments are, if anything, more important than the multiple because if you get your adjustments wrong, you know, it can make a significant difference. So I think if you don't understand an industry, you'd probably feel a little bit uncomfortable. Mm. And as we said in part one, I know I would not be at all comfortable um, doing evaluation for another industry, although I do a lot of valuations for the veterinary industry. Mm. I wouldn't want to touch on another industry. I just, we've had, you know, we only deal with vets and we have clients who's um, spouses will own other businesses. They've asked us for valuations and we've actually said, look, we just don't feel we can do a good job of it. We mm. don't understand the industry and I don't think you'll get a good result because mm. we don't so know what the market does. The one does. case was a, was a motor car garage, which uh, which was a spouse of a vet and we declined to do that and they should go to someone who does that type of industry because I don't know what multiple, multiple to use for that. Yeah. Um, you know, so so that was one of the one of the examples. You had another example, Ann, didn't you? Um, yeah, we had a dry cleaner. Well, I was I was approached by someone who had a dry cleaning business, um, and you know we we just don't know what the financials should look like. We don't know what dry cleaning businesses sell for, what sort of a market there is, you know, sort of how many buyers there are for that sort of business. So um, we just I, I wouldn't feel at all comfortable, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't want the risk of undervaluing for the seller, and then you know it sells really quickly, and they they could have got a lot more money. I feel I'd be letting my client down if they were selling and if my client was the buyer I would hate to overvalue and they overspend and then they suffer for years with a business they've overpaid for and a debt that they can't afford to pay back because Mm. they overpaid for the business. Mm, I think it's a really good point. Yeah, and I, I guess it it's all it all comes back to this concept of specialization and niching, which is if you're really interested, we'll put somewhere in the show notes and link back to um, a discussion that Paula and I had had in the past, specifically really focusing in on this niching concept, which is actually a really interesting concept from a business perspective, but not exactly relevant to what we're talking about today. But, but you know, we do a lot of work, in, obviously, in the business sales and acquisition space. And of course, that's why we have this podcast here that you're listening to today. But I think it's, it's comparable to, you know, um, people sometimes think that a, a lawyer must know about business sales and acquisitions because they do contracts or that's stuff that a lawyer does, but there are so many nuances in the sale and acquisition environment that most lawyers who, you know, your, your average commercial solicitor maybe gets, maybe at absolute best one every month or two business sale and acquisition, whereas, you know, we might be sitting in any month on, you know, 40 or 50 or more um, sales and acquisitions that we're processing in a particular month. So there's so, just like you're processing so many 
veterinary practices, you just get such a feel for everything that happens in the process and, you know, how to move things along and, and what are some of the sticking points that, you know, people who don't have so much industry depth, I, I guess, just don't get the, the exposure to. And we've really noticed that on the legal side because we have had clients that have chosen their own lawyer mm. and we know just from the questions we get from the lawyer that the lawyer really is out of their depth and don't really understand um, mm. what's involved in the, the sales. So mm. um, it is mm. we, we can see it even with the lawyers that they've got to use somebody mm. that actually knows what they're doing. It's really important. Mm, mm, great point. Okay, fabulous. Um, well, self-serving on my behalf, of course, very clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Not because <laughs> of any reason except that I get really annoyed when my clients aren't properly treated and they've gone yeah. to the wrong person and, and not getting the advice they really need. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Okay, fabulous. All right. So so we touched on, um, you know, some of the issues being, you know, a lack of understanding the multiples. So why don't we get deep into multiples? And and just a bit of a warning here, I, I just want to be really clear that just because we're talking about the multiples doesn't mean that you know so much about the value of your own practice now that you don't need specific assistance <laughs> in this area. Uh, we're not trying to provide enough information for you to go and do damage uh, to you, yourself or your own practice. Give it a bit of an overview. Let's, let's dive into the multiples. What's sort of what's the sort of range that you see in multiples for veterinary practices and what what can impact where on the range veterinary practices sit so first i'll, I'll actually interject there and say that um when applying a multiple if you're going to apply multiple please listen to part, part one of the podcast because <laughs> you're only applying a multiple once a significant amount of accounting adjustments are made yeah. right? don't just immediately assume you can just apply multiple to profit um, yeah. the multiple is the last last part of that, a very very long process so what people say as a matter we we work on um what we actually work on is what the profit is going to be for the business likely sustainably going forwards and then sort of what sort of percentage return you would expect on the investment you're making. So we normally talk in percentages, but if you were going to convert that into a multiply, which is sort of how people think, it would really be three to six. And mm. six is really more on the top end. If you're looking at a corporate buyer, you're not going to find, and that's because of a whole lot of conditions that come with it. If you're not going with a corporate buyer, you're probably looking at three to five. Mm. Okay. All right. So let's stick, and I really want to talk about this corporate buyer option because obviously uh, sometimes the multiples that people can see does sound very attractive on the face of it. So let's just call it out and um, get into, you know, a, a bit of a balanced view of it. But, but just before we go there, can just sticking with the non-corporate buy multiple, what, what are some of the things that impact where in that three to five a, a veterinary practice might end up sitting? So things like what we discussed in part one is where they're situated. So are they in a city or are they quite rural? Because city practices, they're more buyers. So the prices for city practices are higher. So we'd use a, a better multiplier for those. Um, things like the um, type of work they do. So again, I think we mentioned in part one, do they just do small animal work? So just dogs and cats, or is it a mixed practice? Mixed practices are harder to sell. There's not as, as big a market. So again, would be a lower multiplier. Mm. Um, you've also got to look at something like how much revenue does the seller um, bring in, generate? Because if they're bringing in a lot of the revenue, then if they're stepping out altogether, it makes the clinic a bit less valuable because a lot of the goodwill is attached to one person and there's the risk associated 
of them exiting and then some of those clients leaving as well. So some of the goodwill going. Mm. Pada, do you want to add to some of those? Um, yeah, I mean, um, the other thing we would look at is um, is the pricing of the practice. So are their prices low, um, medium or high? So we compare them to our price benchmarking. We know practice that has high prices is a better buy because they've catered to uh, a better a better customer market. Mm-hmm. Um, so a practice that can afford to has a lot of clients but has still got high prices is going to be uh, is going to have a better value than mm-hmm. one that has low prices. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the other things we look at. Um, one of the other things we mentioned in part one is we always look at three years worth of financials. A practice that has got uh, significant revenue growth over three years will value it higher than one that has got revenue. You grow, uh, you know, it's, it's level or it's actually declining. So, mm. uh, so that'll also affect um, what sort of multiplier we'd uh, we'd apply to that particular business. Mm, fabulous. And then, how well equipped they are. You know, have they got a lot of old equipment that's going to need replacing, or they're missing some key pieces of equipment? Because then, obviously, whoever buys is going to have to buy usually would want to buy the bits of equipment that are missing, or there's going to be equipment they need to replace. So, there's a cost when they buy in. So that would you know, make the practice a bit less valuable. You've got to look mm. at that expense. Mm. A big element there, for example, a good example of that would be um, if they've got really old uh, practice management system running very old servers mm. because we know that there's a huge pain point in changing your whole point of sale software, um, retraining all the staff and uh, replacing servers that could be, you know, 30 or 40 grand and are about to blow up in the next six months. Mm. Um, so all that sort of stuff has to be taken into account also in terms of the value of the business. And, of course, part of that is about the exit planning side as well, isn't it? Because I guess, um, you, you know, maybe really uh, practice owners should be thinking about what their exit plans are before they're making really substantial investments into uh, things like this area. If if perhaps they're planning on selling to a corporate buyer, it might be that a corporate buyer comes in with their own systems that they'll overlay anyway and, you know, you might say, okay, well, it's better not to be, be spending money on that. But if they're looking, if they have other uh, factors that are at play that make them less likely to want to sell to a corporate buyer, then, you know, maybe it's a really good move. So, so it depends, doesn't it? They yeah, should have yeah. an idea of what exit looks like first in their opportunity yeah their options before they're making some of those substantial capital decisions yeah because I think yep. the things we look at are not necessarily thing that the corporates look at with their multiplier they would look at certain factors to decide whether they'd want to buy the clinic and then the multiplier I don't think is as varied as our multiplier because if it's a clinic they want then it's going to be the higher multiplier regardless they don't look at all the factors that we look at mm. they've got their own criteria of how they choose what businesses they want. That highlights actually that the corporates will only target very specific types of practices. Yeah. So what are they then? What What is the kind of business that they're looking for? I mean, I can't say what they're looking for and that I don't, you know, we don't know them and what they're looking for. I get the feeling it's generally, there has to be at least two vets yep. in the business. Generally, they're small animal only. There are occasions where they'll buy a mix, but generally they prefer small animal only. Yep. Um, Paula, what else? They look at high net profit margin practices um, that are already running at a high net profit margin. Not Um, necessarily. They do buy, depending on, so there's also different corporates. So some corporate, you know, the different corporate players have their own criteria. So it's not even the same between the corporate players. Across the board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are corporates that um, would turn away a clinic that's, doesn't have high profitability and I know of another corporate that has immediately gone and snapped it up. So they are, you know, Mm. they have their own criteria for whatever reasons. Um, so I don't think profitability is necessarily a, a factor that dependent on the corporate. 
Mm-hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because other industries which are similar in many ways are perhaps in different phases of where they are in, in the in the aggregated model. Um, so dental has gone through a period of high levels of aggregation. And um, I, I get the sense that in the veterinary industry, it's sort of, it's sort of still at early phases. Like where are you seeing that, they, that we are in this, um, in this level of aggregation? Pilot, do you want to comment? Yeah, it, 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 so again, because it's it's our industry and we keep track of it. Like we know that um, in in the United Kingdom, for example, it's uh, it's uh, it's much further along the route yeah, than yeah. what it is uh, here in Australia. Um, we know in the USA, it started a lot earlier than in the UK, but never actually reached the level of aggregation that it did in the UK. So clearly, the the British market was much much more um, amenable to a corporate model. And uh, in Australia, it started like of the countries we've worked in or, or, or worked as vets in. In Australia, it's actually started the latest. Mm. So I would say I wouldn't say it's in the early phases anymore. It's been going on now probably and for what six six years or, or longer. Oh, you go back even to longer, the biggest yeah. I mean, if you original to, play. It goes back further than that. Even, so it has actually been going on. It's been going on quite a while. Yeah. Um, it was originally only one major player. Size, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, but they don't. They seem to have struggled to to like they seem to get momentum and then back off a little bit again. So you also mm. never know how long they going to carry on acquiring for. Mm. Um, and I think one of the differences with um, veterinary and other businesses like dental, you know, veterinary business employs a lot more staff because they run the full hospital behind the scenes as well. Yeah. So you're not just buying, you know, the consulting side of it. There's the whole hospitalization side, plus there's a full theatre. So, you know, they, they there's a lot more staff. So I think it makes it harder um, for a corporate model than um, some of the other professional services. So I think that's also why it's been a bit slower because that, you know, it's, it's not as, as easy with all the, the professional staff you require. Mm-mm. Okay, fabulous. So, so then, if if we stick with this discussion um, about the corporate buyer, let's really dig into what the differences might be. So, obviously, we've talked about well, here's the potential opportunity of a higher multiple with with a corporate buyer. But what what are we um, if we're looking to exit? What what are some of the factors that we should be really aware of in selling to a corporate buyer that might offset some of what might be perceived to be that advantage of the um, of the increased multiple? So I think one of the big things is the earnouts. So what happens is they offer you a price up front based on a, a, around a, a six times multiplier. So the, the, the price on the, you know, you think, oh, I'm getting X amount of money and it looks really good, but you're not usually getting that money up front. You're getting yeah. a part of it. So usually you get about 80% up front and then depending on the, the corporate, what the sort of contract is, but you normally have to stay on for two to three years. And in the, those years, there are set criteria you have to reach each year in order to get a bit more of the money. So that balance of 20% would then be paid out to you over the next two to three years, but depending on you reaching certain targets. So you A, have to carry on working there. You you can't sort of go, you can't just sell and exit for those that want to just retire. And go on holidays. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you are um, required to reach certain targets. So you take the risk that the practice doesn't do as well as what you're thinking it would, because you've got to remember it's no longer under your management, it's under yeah. someone else's management. So you're taking that risk. And we do see it happen 
often that people don't actually reach their targets. So they don't get the rest of their money and they end up a little bit disappointed as a result. Yeah. I think I, I just have to call it out. Like this is like many people who uh, might still be listening to this who are in different industries might hear that and say, wow, what's that? Like the the standard is 80% upfront because that, that is actually in many industries a very, very high upfront component um, as in, in comparison to the earnout for, for, for a corporate buyer. But um, but I think it's really important points that you make here because if you're counting uh, the dollars that you think will end up in your pocket and then you find that you actually have very limited control about what that earnout looks like. And, you know, of course, this is part of the job of making sure things um, are right and fair and flow through correctly in the in the sale agreement that, that you're signing. But there's a, there, there's a lot at stake and certainly that money should never be viewed as a sure thing. Yeah, so it can't be viewed as a sure thing. And then, you know, I've had buyers that are uh, sellers that are thinking of selling to corporate and they've sat down and worked out that they'd prefer to stay on for another three years themselves, you know, owning yeah. the business. Yeah. Because that 80% that they're guaranteed of often works out less than what they would get to a non-corporate buyer in two to three years' time if they've mm. run the clinic well. And they're taking the profits from the clinic as well as their salary for those two to three years. Whereas when you're working for the corporate, you obviously, for those earnout, that earnout period, you're only getting your salary. So as the owner, if you hold on for two, you know, for two to three years, you're getting your salary plus the business profits, and then you're getting probably 80% of what the corporate would have paid you from a private buyer. So overall, financially, you can you know, often end up better off. I'm, I'm jumping up and down in my chair here because I've got a speech. Like, this is so This is so easy. I'm surprised you managed to keep quiet. How so long you easily. never keep quiet? <laughs> I'm going to give you This is so easily missed. And, um, you know, from the corporate's <laughs> perspective, was a really, really good good strategy of theirs to lock buyers in because people were just seeing this multiple, like this higher yeah. multiple, okay? Now, when we actually now think about it, okay, and this is across any industry type and we're talking about earnouts, okay? If you have a very, very profitable business, okay, and you're taking home $250,000, a year, okay? If you sell to, to someone who wants you to do a three-year earnout and is then going to pay your commercial wage of $100,000 a year, mm. over three years, that is $600,000, mm. okay? Mm. That is your opportunity cost of sitting there working as an employee versus an entrepreneurial business owner. Like, mm. do not underestimate your opportunity loss. If you had mm. sat there at that business selling it to one of your employees for three more years, and taken the profits, you would be $600,000 better off. Mm. Um, so do not underestimate the opportunity loss there and being uh, going from a business owner of a profitable business mm. to a uh, an employee. If you're a business owner of a not profitable business, it doesn't make a difference. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if it's a profitable business, then you know, think about that opportunity cost to you. Yeah. Um, it's so important. And and I guess it's 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 also not just about the money as well because um, you know there's this saying once you've run your own business for five years or more you become effectively unemployable and that's uh, me. You know. <laughs> <laughs> that's me. I can tell you a story. I can tell you a story on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us. I, I, I want to hear. I can tell you love stories. Okay, so so vets, vets will enjoy. It will it will it will appreciate this. I used to like when a veterinary practice that sold out to a corporate, and the owner there, like at that stage, it was only a one year earnout clause. 
and they um the, the that was in the old days they did the pharmaceutical one, yeah. companies <laughs> uh, the pharmaceutical companies had this little gimmick where um to to remind owners that their dog needs vaccinating every day you used to put this little fridge magnet on your fridge and you used to press a button and it used to count down 365 days <laughs> this, this guy hated working for the corporate so much that he'd put one of his fridge magnets on all the fridges at the hospital and he'd press the button and it was counting down his days <laughs> That's such a good story. But it's so true, isn't it? You know, the the idea of being, you know, obviously the idea of selling sometimes for business owners who are really busy having to run a business as well as, you know, sit sit in the seat of um, dealing with uh, patients, um, they, uh, I guess, it's another thing entirely, though, to be working at the behest of someone else and having to follow someone else's direction. And some people, sometimes it's a bit of a, an emotional roller coaster that people just don't realise until they're in it is, um, is a bit of a ball and chain. And I think sometimes they're told to do things in a certain way or, you know, there's a, a, a protocol, obviously, because you're working for someone else, and then they're dealing with the client's on the ground having to implement those changes and then they're getting the pushback from the clients and they can't treat the clients the way they used to or do the things they used to because it's not theirs to make those decisions. So they're forced to do things in a way that they may be not comfortable with, Mm. but they're having to face the clients doing that. And, you you know, they, they may just not feel that comfortable doing it because it's not what they would normally do. Yeah. So I think it can be, you know, I think that's why sometimes some business owners are counting down because it's not the way they would. It, it's very to hard when, you, when you're when you looking at customers, particularly in this kind of industry where you've had a relationship with some people for 15, 20 years um, and suddenly having policy dictated to you from uh, up top from someone who possibly yeah. isn't even a veterinarian. Yeah. Um, you know, you might not agree with some of those policies, yet you're having to push them to clients you've had a long-standing relationship with. Some, for some people, that would be fine. For others, I think, you know, three years of doing that might be really, really tough. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a really good point. And so is there anything else, I guess, just rounding out this discussion about the corporates um, before we move into the next side, is there anything else that you think worthy of pointing out um, if you were considering selling to a corporate? I think some of them also, some vets are selling out because they're really struggling to get staff. So they feel, Mm -hmm. you know, they'll make that someone else's worry. They can just work in the business and not have to worry about getting staff. But what happens is it's no easier for the corporates to get staff than it is for the individual clinics. So they're still short staff. They're still having to cover the extra shifts because there's no magical one because a corporate buys you, suddenly you're fully staffed and got all great staff. Mm. You know, they, corporates have the same staffing issues. So it's not going to just take that staffing headache away from you. And there's sometimes this thing, oh, you know, it's just so hard to get people and I'm struggling, you know, with the rosters and everything. I'll just sell to the corporate and stay on and, you know, they think it'll all just go away and it doesn't necessarily Mm. It also depends how sentimental you are about your legacy of your business. And I know we, we're accountants and we're talking money and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, when you're looking at a medical profession, some, for some people, and certainly for some of our clients, the legacy of having that business treat their patients and customer base uh, on an ongoing basis once they, they go away is, um, is important to them. Mm. Uh, and we're sitting at a time now where we know that there are certain corporate practices that are sitting without bets. Mm. Um, you know, we're talking about the difficulty in recruiting staff, and I would argue that for a corporate practice, it's even harder. Um, so um, we have, you know, if you'd sold the practice and you were sentimentally attached to that and you really got on well with the team and you'd loved your clients, 
Um, and to find that in a year's time, that practice was sitting without a, without a veterinarian there able to service the clients because that particular corporate can't recruit. I think that would be a hard pill to swallow. Yeah. So, um, so, so don't assume that they're going to recruit any better than you. Because and I think you're also, you, you're living in the area still a lot of the times. You often haven't just flown off and disappeared. So you're living mm-hmm. in the area. You're still bumping into your old clients in the shops. You know, mm-hmm. you, you're still seeing those people. So you do, you know, often you've had the same clinic for 25, 30 years. You, mm-hmm. You've seen them through a few generations of pets and you do develop that relationship. I think it's hard to, you know, for a lot of vets to just sort of ignore that and, yep. um, you know, ac- accept that their, their clients maybe aren't getting the, the attention they need. Mm, yeah, okay, really good points. Okay, fabulous. Well, look, um, the one uh, area, I just I wanted to talk about two areas before we finish up uh, with this episode today, I, and I'll um, I'll give you a bit of a heads up. <laughs> I, I wanted to talk for a moment about structure mistakes, and maybe this ties into the other area that I wanted to talk about, which is some of the um, critical areas for prepping for sale, and and we've talked about the um, the pure accounting side, so cleaning up the accounts. But I just want to look at this from stepping back and and taking a bit of a more um, general approach to looking at um, if we say that selling a business is all about taking the value in the business and transferring that to a buyer, you know, what are some of these things that um, are specific to the veterinary um, industry that that um, that business owners should be thinking about when they're prepping for exit, and and this actually dovetails into the structured discussion. So let's start there. What are some of the mistakes that you see being made from a structuring perspective for businesses who are um, veterinary practices who are heading into exit? So heading into exit, I guess in some ways the structure you've got, it you know you've got to really think. It depends how you're going to sell. If you're going to sell outright, then the structure you've got is is the structure you've got because to restructure at that point, um, you're not going to gain anything in terms of, of, I'm thinking in terms of capital gains tax. So if you may be not structured as best as you could be in terms of capital gains tax when you sell, it's too late. It's going to catch you out at some point along the way. Um, but if you're looking at bringing in somebody else, so you're going to be sharing the business with somebody, then you may need to restructure if you, for example, in a discretionary trust, a family trust, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't just bring them straight into that discretionary trust. So then you've got to decide, are you going to do, get them to set up a trust and do a partnership for trust and have a partnership? Or would you be better off changing over into a company and your trust owning the shares in a company? Mm -hmm. And then the new buyer would own shares in the company. So there's things like that. I think it's more your structure is probably more important if you're looking at bringing somebody in um, mm. than if you're selling out. Right. So, some of the issues that um, you know I, I do see from time to time relate also to. I mean, number one, there, there's a if you're getting to a business early enough, you can make you, you know structured changes, and so absolutely, completely agree. You're talking about the business at the sale, but you know, say say they come in five years prior to a sale, three years prior to a sale. You know, you can do a bit of work on the structure to turn it into something that might be more tax effective at exit, depending on where um, where the business Yeah, is, and especially know. if the business is going to be doing better over the next three years because, you know, if you're thinking about it three years ahead, you're probably prepping your business so it's going to value higher. Mm. So if you restructure also when you're at a, a lower value, um, any penalties that you may incur for the restructure would obviously be lower as well. 
Mm. And, and you, you know, and sometimes there's this issue of, you know, companies having, you know, different share classes and therefore that impacts the ability to access more business concessions and those sorts of things. So, yeah. so I guess just a general clean-up that, that can yeah. happen in relation. And I guess with, with trust, who's been getting the distributions mm. over the, mm. you know, the past year and things, so, mm. you know, where the capital gain would lie depending on who the beneficiaries are and, mm. and all of that as well. Mm. And then, so then at sale, though, I guess the other structure considerations that I see quite often is, um, you know, and, and you probably don't see this as much because your clients have been with you and so you've, you've already prepared them. But I see this um, when, uh, when I deal with clients perhaps who haven't been in as proactive uh, an environment um, where, you know, they lead into sale, they go and deal with the broker or the corporate advisor and then they get all geared up for sale. Um, for example, if they're operating out of a company structure and they're looking at a business sale, but they didn't realise perhaps some of the benefits that might be applicable to them if they had have looked at a share sale or yeah, certain, yeah, definitely. certain things like that. So, uh, I mean, are there any, as I say, you probably see this less because you've had, you've worked with them and had the opportunity to be proactive. But in terms of clients that have come into you at that late piece, do, do you ever see that that sort of issue that they're just this this lack of understanding about the different ways that they can sell? I think they don't understand the different way to sell. They just feel they're selling the, the clinic. So they don't mm. really sort of see that they could be selling an entity. That they, they don't see the different ways. And also just in terms of if they are going to sell the shares, cleaning out the company with, you know, if they've got, for example, director's loans sitting yeah, there loans, or yeah, those sorts yeah. of things sitting there. Yeah. So um, that sort of thing being considered. I think the other thing sort of, you've touched on is sometimes people aren't aware of the tax implications of their sales. So they think they're getting this high value for the clinic, yes, yes. but if they're not structured well, or sometimes d- despite whatever structure they have, they actually still got a fair bit of tax to pay yeah. and it really affects what f- their final figure is. And they really need to take that into consideration. If they think they can have enough to live on, it may be significantly less by the time they've looked at the tax implications. That is such a good point because I have seen, I mean, I, I'm, it's so I am absolutely not a, an accountant. This is not financial <laughs> from my side, but you know, because I see so many um, businesses that are coming into sale, like the very, like literally before I even start talking about the legal side, the first thing I say is, okay, have you sat down and worked this flow through with your accountant? Do you know what cash will end up in your pocket at the end of the day? Yeah. And I promise you, um, other than clients that I deal with of yours, of course, um, the you, you know, so often the answer is no. Do you know what? I just haven't sat down and worked. Like, I don't yeah. know. And yeah. I'm just like, okay, well, the test, like that is so urgent, that discussion. It is so urgent. Can you maybe paint a picture? Have you got any examples um, there in, in your toolkit of, um, of uh, perhaps clients that you've dealt with who haven't realised this and, and some of the differences in the choices that they've made that have impacted how much they've had in their pocket at the end of the day? I think the problem with us is we have a very close relationship with our yeah, clients. Yeah, so we yeah, know yeah. as soon as they're thinking of yes, selling there yeah. and then we'll already start to bring these things up to them. So yes. we generally don't see the negatives because we've forewarned them as soon as we hear that they're thinking of selling and sometimes mm. they've delayed selling as a result, but, you know, 
we've we've started to prime them in advance. So mm. our but, clients are fairly educated. But just two weeks ago, I had one who was looking at at introducing a, a partner into their business, and his mm. question to me, he was like, after the discussion, he was like, "Do I pay tax on that? <laughs> <laughs> like, like <laughs> not how much tax?" So the yeah, reality yeah, is like, yeah. like you don't expect, like don't assume that your business owners um, know. You know, yeah, just don't assume exactly. because you've been working as an accountant for X number of years, you you know, business owners will know that there's good because odds are for a lot of people, it's going to be like they've only ever done this once. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, yeah. they, they don't assume that they're going to know, know that there's like, you've got to tell them you're going to pay tax on that. Yeah. Like, that's yeah, yeah. stage one, like realization that there's going to be tax on that and some, because some of them might know. Yeah, but I guess that also comes back to, um, doesn't it, that decision about how you're actually going to do it because, of course, you know, if we've got this partnership of trust versus if we're issuing shares versus if we're selling shares, you know, I I guess quite often there's just that, um, you you know, in in fact, very, very often across the board and it completely makes sense, there's a lack of perhaps complete understanding about that difference between the issuing shares or versus transferring shares where the money will actually go from that or... You, yeah. you know, all of that side, right, which are things that I guess we deal with so often that we think, um, you, you know, people might think to think about, but it really isn't like this is our world. This is not at all the world. Yeah, all they think about is they're selling their business for X yeah. amount of money. That's yeah. all they see and they, they don't yeah. understand anything other yeah. than that. Yeah, which is completely understandable. But I guess it's it's hard, you know, it's a call out to, I guess, all of the accountants out there who are dealing with your clients. You know, it's, it's super important to understand that they don't, really there's no reason why they should understand this because they deal with it so rarely that it's just not yeah. a normal business. And as soon as they're bringing up that they're thinking about selling, I think it's up to the accountant to really be bringing up all these things yeah. to, to making them aware. Um, yeah. And that's definitely what we try and do is as soon as we hear when that they might be selling, we immediately start sort of bringing up all these things so they're aware long before they've actually even found their buyer. That proactivity. And what we've actually done is we've got a whole lot of online educational uh, videos and webinars that we've done on prior valuation processes and stuff. And we give them access to all those materials because even hearing it once, like as you can appreciate, it's complicated stuff. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, it's something you can listen to a couple of times. Um, So at least they understand sort of the normalization adjustments that get done, add backs, all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, we yep. do a num- number of courses on on buy sales and this exact issue, you know, selling selling shares versus just selling goodwill plant and equipment, um, and offering them some kind of materials that helps them understand. Because you can tell, like, you can see sometimes when you're having this discussion with a client, once you get five minutes into it, the eyes just glaze over, mm. and it's information overload because there's mm. so much for them to learn in one hit. So mm. having some kind of resource available to them, I think for any accountant, like regardless of which industry you're in, I would think it's good to have some kind of resource that they can refer back to. I think would be really handy for them. Now, can, can you tell us where where our listeners go to find that? Because I think it's really important that we um, that that we direct um, all of our listeners to where that is in case they're interested. Um, well, we have an educational website called vetbusinessuniversity.com, all one word, vetbusinessuniversity.com. Um, it's a subscription-based site. It's fairly affordable month-by-month fee. But it's got a whole lot of practice management stuff in there and it's got a whole lot of stuff on valuations. And in fact, we've even got at our aplaccountants.com.au website, if you actually go and search on that website, valuations, we've got some valuation web events that Anne and I have run for clients where we discuss all the ins and outs of business valuations. 
That is fabulous. What a great resource. Okay, and we'll link through to it in our show notes as always. Um, okay, now before we round up, I, I can't stop asking questions. So oh, excited by this topic today. But we're, um, we're probably running over time. So I'm going to, but I just want to cover a couple of quick things first, just looking at this prep into exit. I'd just like to step back and, and have a bit of a think about where the value in a veterinary practice is and for, for how do we ensure what are the sorts of other things other than just the pure accounting, but happy for you to throw in more accounting sides as well, that um, that we should be thinking about as we're approaching exit um, in this industry. And, and, and one of the things, just to kick it off, um, you, you know, staff is obviously such an important important element um, in this industry, but so is the relationship that staff can have with your clients. So I think, um, it, you know, it, it's important anyway to be thinking about non-solicitation clauses in um, in your agreements with your staff, but certainly going into sale, that's something that a buyer either will or if not will should <laughs> be looking at, you know, in terms of understanding the preservation of the value of the client base for the staff who might have some of those ongoing relationships. So that's one thing that sort of has stuck out for me in this industry. I mean, it's important in many industries, but certainly in this industry as well. Are there other things that um, that have popped out to you? As well, just back onto your staff, I think vets can be a little bit sometimes casual in terms of their employment mm. contracts. Yeah. So you will find a number of veterinary businesses that really don't have employment contracts or don't necessarily have good employment contracts. Mm. So it is something that you'd want to get properly in place if you're thinking of selling um, and not scaring your staff, you know, making your staff, you know, it's, it's going to be better for you that we've got a proper contract, not even that you're selling or anything, but just that, yes. you know, there's better contracts in place for people. Yes, 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 yes. Be, be, you know, having more of a business mind to, yeah. to how we're conducting the practice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then because valuation is so heavily based on profitability, it's really just looking at those areas in your business that you're not doing as well as what you could in terms of professional services. So where you could actually be running a better business, which would improve your profitability and therefore the, the value. So it's all part of that sort of planning. Mm. So mm. You, you've got and better as You're talking about the service lines yeah. and, you know, all of those but, sorts of yeah. things. Yeah, and I think particularly in the veterinary market, and I don't know how this ports to other businesses, but uh, vets are quite, um, quite diverse in what they do. You know, they're a doctor, they're a dentist, they're a surgeon. And any veterinary surgeon, if you look at the, the variety of items that they invoice, in many veterinary practices, it exceeds a thousand items. Mm. You know, so you look at an accounting firm like ours, you know, you've had maybe an arsenal of about 20 or 30 different things to invoice. Mm. Um, in a veterinary practice, there's a lot of moving parts mm. and invariably even high net profit margin practices are neglecting a certain component of their pharmacy or their hospital or their consulting or their x-ray facilities uh, or their laboratory facilities because they have in-house laboratories. Um, so it's uh, it's very very uh, it's always very very good for 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 practice if you're planning for a sale to have a look at all these areas of your business and invariably you'll find a few areas where uh, which are being underutilized mm. and um, and you can improve profitability a bit further for those three years to improve the sale and also checking mm. your reminder systems that the reminders as many reminders that you should be doing you you're doing and that they're going out properly so that you're making sure that's all in place well, that's, it's yeah, good. You know, it's another moving part of the business. In a veterinary practice, you have to recall all your patients for annual vaccinations. And it's yeah. a key element of the veterinary business because for every vaccination, you do one out of every four of those patients will actually have something clinically wrong with them mm. because pets only live for you know 10 to 15 years. So like, they mm. get older quicker. Mm. Um, so you, you check them up every year and invariably they'll have a lump that needs removing or they'll have bad teeth or they'll have mm. a bad ear. 
Um, so that reminder system is a key element of, um, of ongoing profit for the business. So if that's being neglected, again, like it needs fixing and will improve the value. That's a really good point. Such a good point. And, and I guess also, you know, we did touch on it in part one. And if you haven't heard part one, make sure you go back and listen to that. But, that, but the lease, having a lease in place, but you, you yeah. know, that um, which is a particular issue if, um, if it's a, a premises that you own or own through your SMSF, you know, having the right, you know, a proper um, and standard commercial terms in, in your lease, having that on board before for you exiting so that that can roll on to, to the buyer is also something really to be thinking about, I think. Good. Anything else there that we haven't covered? Well, 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 you know, that's smart. <laughs> we could probably come up with a whole new section. We could do part three another day. <laughs> but, but, uh, well, actually, one other thing I guess I throw in there just for, and, and you know, this is probably from a legal perspective, but uh, thinking about brand protection as well, you know, I think once again, the veterinary industry is p- perhaps a little bit slower on the uptake of um, that brand protection as a whole than many other industries that we deal with. But but brand can be, um, it can be a really important element if you're a multi-practice um, environment, uh, I think. So, you know, quite often uh, many of the practices are, are localised to a particular geographic location. Obviously, it's a relevant to the type of business it is where, where distance is is a key factor. But, you, you know, where, where you're thinking about the potential of multiple practices, I think brand protection is something that really should be um, considered as well. And so I guess that's just one thing that I'd throw out there that, uh, that comes to mind. Excellent. Well, look, I think that's it for today. I just want to say an absolutely massive thank you. We have covered a whole heap. I've actually got a lot more questions, but I think we've uh, run out of time before (laughs) I ran out of questions. (laughs) Um, Can I just say thank you so much, Anne and Paolo, for coming on to the Deal Room podcast today. Um, It's been a really, I've I've had a lot of fun. I hope you've had fun. (laughs) We have. Thanks, Joanna. It's always always fun. Lots to think about and talk about. (laughs) There is, there is, there is. Now, um, maybe if you can just give a shout out if um, if any of uh, our listeners, you know, whether they be brokers who are dealing with some um, veterinary practices who want um, or who, who want to get access to someone who knows how to um, value their veterinary practice, whether it's accountants who need the assistance of a specialist or whether it's buyers or sellers themselves, where can they find you? They can go to our website, so www.aplaccountants.com.au and all our details are on there for everyone. Fabulous. Okay, and of course, as always, we'll link this through in our show notes and on our website so you don't have to worry if you're running along at the moment and you can't uh, jot that down, just head over to our website and our show notes and we'll have it all there. Massive thank you to you for both of your time today. Thank you, Joanna. Thanks, Joanna. That's awesome. All right, that's it for part two of our two-part series, and that finishes up our series talking all about the veterinary industry valuations and merger and acquisition activity. So if you'd like more information about this topic, just head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com where you'll be able to get in contact with Anne and Paolo, and you will also be able to get in contact with our lawyers at Aspect Legal if you or your clients would like to discuss any legal aspects of sales 
or acquisitions. And that's it. So if you enjoyed what you heard today, then um, I'd love it if you could possibly head into your favorite podcast player and leave us a review. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button as well on your way out. Well, that's it for today's episode and the finalization of our two-part series. You've been listening to Joanna Oki and the Deal Room Podcast, a podcast very proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. See you next time. Aspect Legal has a number of great services that help businesses prepare for a sale or acquisition to help them prepare in advance and to get transaction ready. We've also got a range of services to help guide businesses through the sale and acquisitions process. We work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. We provide a free consultation to discuss your proposed sale or acquisition. So see our show notes on how to book a time to speak with us or head over to our website at aspectlegal.com.au. Ladies and gentlemen, that will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening to the Deal Room Podcast. To find out more about this episode and other episodes in the series, check out the show notes or head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com.au. Deal Room.